Are you ready? Are you shitty down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Not divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. It's episode 47 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. Happy September, happy fall, and happy to be here with you starting September here on the Shine On Podcast. I'm buzzing about today's episode, the docket, the featured guest spot. This episode has it all, and perhaps most importantly, it has my guy, producer Dave. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. I'm well. I'm bummed that the summer's over, but... Uh, just more time to spend on the podcast now, Evan, as we stampede towards episode 50. It's coming up, man. I'm excited. Yeah, no, look, you're excited. I'm excited. The listeners are excited. And Dave, the summer's <laughs> over, but the NFL season is here. Week one is in the books. And look, we have a great episode today. Coming up, I'm joined by Dr. Marissa Franco, speaker, professor, friendship expert, and the author of the incredible new book, Platonic which just hit the bookshelves, and it's an absolute must-read. Wait until you hear this interview with author Dr. Franco. Look, the reality is we're living in a time where loneliness is prevalent. And sadly, isolation has filled our lives and our relationships, personal and professional, these past two and a half years. How can you live a happier life, a longer life, a better life? How can you create that spark in your marriage and revitalize your relationship? Dr. Franco gives you that answer in her book, Platonic, how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends. And we get into all of this and so much more coming up with her. And producer Dave, I know you were busy prepping for the docket during halftime of the Patriots game this past <laughs> Sunday. Yes. NFL season's back. Give us a preview, not only of what you think about the Patriots, but what you have lined up on today's docket. Well, the docket is jam-packed with articles from the news, and we'll we'll get to that in just a moment. As far as the Patriots go, actually, <laughs> hopes are low in New hopes are low in New England, but the Giants uh, have slightly higher hopes, right? Yeah, not that much higher, but a little bit. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> let's get into the docket. And now, let's see what's on the docket. Another jam-packed edition of the docket with a cool variety of stories. The first one, Evan, comes to us from 8 Human Resources Director Magazine, which we don't hear from a lot, but it's an interesting topic. That is the first one. Item one. Headline reads as follows. How can HR support staff who are going through a divorce? A company has launched a new benefit to address the impact among employees. Something I had never considered before, Evan, that a company could specifically help their employees through a divorce. Your thoughts on this item? Dave, I got to tell you, what an absolutely important article, and I love this. Look, divorce is arguably the biggest life transition someone can go through. I've said it before. It's a full-time job. You live it. You breathe it. You think about it. You worry about it. 24 hours a day, you worry how it's going to affect you, your children, your family. You ask over and over and over again, am I going to be okay? Will my children be okay? 
And the article mentions a recent report from Good Housekeeping, which found that 81% of employees going through a divorce suffer from loss of productivity, while 67% report a decline in their health and well-being. And Dave, you know, look, I, I, I love the statistic. I love, you know, a great nugget like this, and it's telling. And if you don't believe the numbers, if you don't believe the statistics, you absolutely should, as this is real. Divorce, divorce affects you personally. It can affect you professionally. The article brilliantly goes on to talk about how companies can provide support to people going through divorce. And Dave, let me ask you, when you were going through your own divorce, was it a challenge to focus on things at work, outside of the divorce process? And what do you think of the idea of a company providing support to people going through the divorce process? Is it a great idea or is it something a bit too personal? I I think from where I stand and from my history, I'd say it's, it's welcome. It's absolutely welcome. I was actually working in finance at the time and it had my divorce definitely had an, an impact on my business. And I just, it may, if nothing else, because of the time suck, divorce takes up a lot of time. <laughs> you know, you, you got to prepare your numbers and your books and hopefully you don't have too many legal fights, but many do. And so you don't have time to do your job and you're distracted. As it happened, I had a manager at the time who he, had, he was a divorced guy himself. He was very sympathetic but there wasn't any system in place. And I would welcome it. I would welcome it for sure. If you had that system in place going back to when you were going through it, do you think it would have helped in terms of the work, in terms of the work product, in terms of whatever you were going through at the office? Would have you seen the benefit of it? Yeah. I mean, again, the the there's no getting around the time suck. There's no getting around that you're, you're going to be distracted. But to have your company kind of back you up and even to just let you know, you know, we get it. This is tough. That I think would have put me in a, a a better mindset. And I think everyone can use that because when you're getting, when you're going through a divorce, part of you feels aside from just perhaps being emotionally broken by the whole experience, you feel like there's something wrong with you, that you're an outcast. You know, you feel like people are staring at you walking down the street going, ah, that person's getting divorced, <laughs> you know? And so to feel that it, that it's a normal thing that many people go through, that, that would have been helpful for sure. Yeah, you know you're not alone. You know your company supports you. You have that support of the people at the office, the people around you, and the support comes from the top, and it helps you do your job. It helps you professionally. It helps you personally, and it's a great way to help you go through, you know, really, you know, the experience of getting divorced, which, look, as we've talked about, is a very, very, very difficult thing. Our second item on the docket concerns a theory that divorce might be more harmful to children's education than a, even a parental death. That's number two. Item two comes to us from SciPost.com. That's P-S-Y as in psychology, SciPost.com. And the headline, as I sort of previewed, the divorce appears to have a bigger impact on children's educational attainment than parental death. That is a sobering thought and, and kind of a disturbing thought. Your thoughts on this one, Evan? I mean, Dave, look, look at the headache. The title says yeah. it all. Divorce may have a bigger impact on children's educational attainment than parental death. Wow. Mm. I mean, I read that twice. <laughs> Absolutely staggering, but I believe it. Look, there's a study published in the demographic research which suggests that children of divorce tend to have lower educational attainment than children of parental death. The reality is it's a real concern of so many of the clients I work with and represent. How will my children be? 
Will they be okay? Will they struggle socially, academically, and educationally, athletically, or developmentally? This concern is why a lot of people have that fear about getting divorced, and they think twice or three times or four or five times about whether they should just stay unhappily married or actually get divorced because there's such a concern about the children, what's going to happen to them, and are they going to be okay? And you know what I thought when I read this article? To go back and listen to the wonderful conversation with UCLA professor of sociology and statistics, Jenny Brand from December 2021, we discussed this exact thing. We discussed the relationship between divorce and education and the impact that a parent's divorce has on the educational attainment of children. It's real. Yeah, and I, th- I think it. this is something that it's, it's pretty hard to generalize. I'm biased because I, I'm divorced, and I would hate to think that something was, was this powerful in a negative way towards my kid's education. And by the way, my, my son, one of my sons has autism. He's doing great. But the other one, um, he's in his junior year at college, and he gets all A's, okay? So come on. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a credit to, damn, that's a credit to you and your, you know, your ex. I mean, look, the, the, yeah. the point is children will be okay. And so it's always interesting to see what happens during the years that follow the separation and divorce. Look, there's no getting around that the immediate impact is going to be hard, but I think it's a credit to the parents in terms of the resources, in terms of, you know, the, the, the programs or the assistance that they can put around their children. And look, it's also a credit to the children. Children are incredibly, you know, strong and resilient. And you see that come through in so many different ways, shapes and forms. Item number three concerns uh, an old friend of mine and perhaps the greatest uh, football player ever. Let's find out what that one's about. Item three. It's from DailyMail.com. And the headline reads as follows. They could be headed for divorce. NFL GOAT, that's greatest of all time, Evan. Tom Brady has still not made up with wife Giselle Bunchen after she returned from furious solo Costa Rica break triggered by his decision to unretire from football. The headline's uh, not the best written thing, but we get the point. There's been a lot of mystery clouding why Tom Brady was missing from training camp for an extended period. And now there are rumors that this might be it. And... um your thoughts there on Tom Brady and his familial situation. Dave, look, if I had a dollar for every time I heard about rumblings in Tom Brady's marriage, I can retire. <laughs> but look, the truth is with the NFL season underway and week one in the books, we talk about Tom Brady and you're right. We're not talking about him and his accomplishments on the football field, but we're talking about him because what appears that he's going through some marital tension off the field. And look, who knows what's fact, what's fiction, where things are headed with his wife, Giselle, but the rumblings have existed about her unhappiness that Brady decided to return to the football field and his football family. And look, this is a conversation that so many couples have. Family, career, job, how people spend their time, where people spend their time. So to me, this isn't as much about Brady as it is about the conversation that everyday people have and the struggles and the discussions. And it really highlights the importance of having conversations on really important topics. And if you can't discuss it together, find an outlet, find a therapist, find someone to facilitate those conversations. Because if you don't, we've talked about, I've seen time and time again, really what happens if you don't have the conversations where you have a conversation, it's not productive. You're not headed in a very good direction. 
I think this is he's a celebrity, she's a celebrity, they're uber celebrities, and yet it's interesting how they may have the similar problems as to the, the rest of the world. He wants to continue in this job that is a dangerous job. She she apparently wants him to come home now and say enough is enough with this football business, Tom. And that that could be a very sticky argument there, you know, because they, they both have a point. Yeah, they, they both have a point. Look, and, and, but from Brady's perspective, it's all he's known. Right. Going back to the days when he started playing in high school and college, this is all he, he's ever known. And we see so many football players who leave the football field and, and again, I don't think, you know, we're talking about, you know, Brady in this particular situation, but you see so many football players who start businesses that fail or they go bankrupt or they run into real financial problems. Again, I don't see Brady at all ending up in that category, but it, it's always a question for people is what are you going to do? All you've known is structure. All you've known is life on the field and making that transition is very hard to do. And look, Brady has a family on the field and that family is his football teammates and the coaches. And look, in many ways, can't fault the guy for wanting to return. We're up to the portion of the program where Evan gives his thoughts on topics of the day. It's the Shine on Spotlight and involves, of all things, a Kelly Clarkson album. The Shine on Spotlight. Doesn't kill you, makes you Producer Dave, I know you're a big Kelly Clarkson fan, and so we start <laughs> September talking off in you know, great music fashion about Kelly Clarkson. And really, we talk about how to turn a heartbreaking, sad, painful divorce experience into something positive. How can you do it? How can you take that experience and grow and learn and channel it into something positive? We have seen people write about their divorce, talk about their divorce. Adele, she wrote a song about her experience. And now we see Kelly Clarkson following in Adele's footsteps, prepping an emotional post-divorce album about it. I get it, and I think it's great. Everyone who goes through it needs an outlet, a mechanism, a way to deal with what has happened to you, your family, your children. How can you process all those emotions? And for the musically gifted like Adele and Kelly Clarkson, it's through music. And producer Dave, I've heard you sing, you're not that musically gifted, but how did you take your experience and how did you channel what you went through into something positive for yourself and for your family? Um, you know, I don't know if I did the best job at this because I, like everybody, spent a lot of time kind of wallowing in, in misery and um, watching a lot of TV probably, probably watching some Kelly Clarkson music videos. But uh, eventually I, I think I used it as a way to do different things with my kids that maybe I hadn't done before. It You're almost forced into doing that. So... I didn't want my kids to be sitting around my apartment with me. And so we did different things. We went out to places we hadn't been to before. We made a habit of going out to the movies and having certain traditions and getting certain things. And that was that was certainly a positive. It, it is, I think most divorced people would say, um, one of the silver linings of a divorce is that you get to spend one -on -one, a lot more one-on-one -on -one time with your kids and maybe... Um, that's exactly what they need at that time. So I didn't record an album. Maybe, you know, I, I haven't yet anyway, Evan, but you never know, right? No, you never know. <laughs> Look, who knows what's in store? Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine Out podcast is Dr. Marissa Franco. She's a psychologist, a professor, a friendship expert, and she has a brand new book out, Platonic. 
Marissa, welcome to the Shine Up Podcast. It's great to have you with us. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This episode, we're going to talk about friendship, and this is such an area of focus for you, and you have an incredible new book, which is all about friendship. So let me start by asking you, what does it mean to be a friendship expert? Well, a friendship expert to me, it's funny because I feel like there's some of us experts who come to this field because they're really good at making friends. And that wasn't me. <laughs> I came through this field as a scientist who got my PhD. And so I knew how to read, read research and understand it and turn it into something digestible to help people connect. So if you'll see in the book, I'm sort of like on this process with the reader where I'm like, okay, the research is telling us this and crap, I've been doing this wrong this whole time and now I'm trying to do something different and maybe you should too. And so tell us about that because you mentioned your background sort of the research and science and you talk about in the book, the science of attachment. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so our attachment style is basically our template for how people are treating us at any given time. We develop it in childhood based on how our parents treat us and we go through life basically interpreting our relationships through this template. And it tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So let me get more specific, right? People that have an anxious attachment, they tend to fear abandonment. So if there's any sort of ambiguous cue to them that might signify abandonment, they interpret it as such. And they act out by, let's say, suddenly withdrawing from their relationship because they think the other person, even though they may not be necessarily, or sort of becoming really demanding. And demanding a lot of the other person to prove to them that they're not being abandoned. And that's self-demographic because then people are like, what is going on? Why are you yelling at me? Or why did you suddenly withdraw? And they actually do abandon them. And then what an attachment is people that, that are very threatened by intimacy and feel suffocated by it very easily. And they often don't trust other people. They fear rejection too, but they also are not vulnerable about it. So instead, they can come off as like really superior to other people. It's like the woodenly attached are like these sort of lone wolves who are really uncomfortably vulnerable, not in touch with their feelings. When people try to connect with them, they get overwhelmed very easily. They sort of push people away. And then you have securely attached, which is what in the book I'm really guiding people to try to become. And these people are comfortable getting close to people. They're comfortable being loving towards other people. They have really healthy relationship functioning and resilience to life overall, because the better we are in creating relationships, the more resilient we are to all of life obstacles and difficulties. Absolutely. That's such a great point. And Marissa, let me ask you, are there any tried and true rules about being a good friend? I would definitely say so. I think something that's really important is a concept called mutuality, which basically means that I'm thinking about my needs and my friend's needs as well, Right. And so people who defy mutuality tend to have poor friendships. And so, let me give you an example, right? Someone I interviewed for the book, they had some chronic health issues. So they couldn't show up for a friend's dance recital. They tell their friend and the friend is like, you're a horrible friend. I can't believe you're jumping me at the dance recital. And that person is only thinking about them, right? They're only thinking about, oh, I guess I don't know. My friend's not showing up. But they're not thinking about what's going on for my friend that is making them not be able to show up. And maybe they need my care and concern. And so it's having that sort of myopic, more self-centered worldview where you almost see people as a tool to fulfill your needs. And you're not actually thinking about their needs <laughs> and how to balance the two people's needs that can make you a really poor friend, unfortunately. And I think the way to be a good friend is to have that mutuality where you're thinking about how do I make my friend happy and myself happy? Let me ask you about that example, which I think is absolutely terrific. In a situation like that, and in other situations where there's disagreements or conflicts, how do friends work through conflict to get past 
certain issues that come up in friendship? Yeah, that's a really great question because the truth is that people break some often conflict. There are people are a lot less likely to bring up conflict with friends than romantic partners, and it's just like imagine if you're married to someone and you expected to never bring up conflict. Like how would that <laughs> how could that work, right? And a friendship is just another relationship where in the same rules of intimacy apply that conflict is inherent to intimacy. It's going to be a part of your friendship. And a lot of people see it as a sign that the friendship would end. When I think instead it's a sign that it might be time to address an issue and come to a sense of mutual understanding. And so some tips that I share for how to do that is first framing is very important. Framing is sharing a line to introduce the conflict and Share that you're you're wanting to address this conflict with an act of love. So, hey, you know, this friendship is really important to me. So I want to make sure nothing gets between us. So I wanted to bring something up, right? Things like using I statements, not blaming the friend. So I felt really hurt when you did this, this, this. Not, you're an awful friend. You're a bad friend. You're not looking to attack them. Also asking for your friend's point of view. I was wondering what was going on for you then that might have made it hard for you to show up in that moment. So you're, so you're engaging in that mutuality like I just talked about. And then I think also asking for what you want to see in the future. So just say, maybe next time, you know, we could do X, Y, Z. And for me, you know, this was one of the biggest struggles that I had with friendship. I always felt like being a good friend meant squashing conflicts and trying to just be okay with everything. But I, I read a study that said that, that if you have open a path that conflict is actually linked to greater intimacy in your friendship. And I realized by avoiding conflict, I was actually harming the intimacy that my friendships could reach. So then I started to try to do something differently and it felt very scary, but it was very valuable and it definitely made me closer to my friends. That's such a great point. And in, in, in sort of the intimacy and family relationships, there's couples therapy, there's marital therapy, but something like that doesn't necessarily exist in sort of the friendship arena, which is what's so fascinating about your book, because in the book, you talk about sort of tips and advice for managing conflict, specifically in friendships. And you mentioned your background. So let me ask you, who is your oldest friend? And as you think back, how has that friendship evolved and changed over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's it's funny, I had in middle school a group of four of us, we called ourselves forever, but now I'm only friends with one of them. So whoever, <laughs> I guess. Um, but I think some of us kind of evolved in similar ways and some of us did. And, and some of us, we weren't compatible anymore and some of us, we weren't in the one other person. And, you know, I think when it comes to friendships, first of all, it's really normal for friendships and every seven years we lose about half our friends. And the other thing is that it's important to think about all our relationships is even if they're temporary, that doesn't mean they're a failure, right? That this gave me something at this time of my life that I really, really needed. And I can acknowledge all the ways that this friendship helped me grow, even if it's no longer a fit for me now. But I would say the friend that still is a fit for me, we just still have similar interests. We still have similar ways of viewing the world. It's like if I met her now, I'd still be her friend versus for those other two friends. If I met them now, the person that I am now, the person they are now, we probably wouldn't be friends. It was sort of just the history and the glue holding us together rather than us mutually benefiting from the friendship right now. It's so interesting to me, Marissa, and you mentioned sort of the seven-year mark in terms of, you know, the length of, of certain friendships. And it brings up a thought that I had about situational friends, whether it's college friends or parent friends or friends who are coworkers. And a lot of times people have friendships at a point in life and they eventually end and people don't know why they ended or people don't really know what happened. And is there a way to maintain 
those friendships beyond sort of just this situation where those friendships sort of sprung out of? Yeah, that's a really great question. I know the the location chip well as someone who's moved around a lot. And I think what you need to do with these location chips, right, is start inoculating them early. And what that means is to you have to do something called repotting the friendship. This is a a word that, that I think his name is Ryan Hubbard. He read the Titring project came up, but it's also reflected in the research that when we vary the settings and the situations in which we interact, our friendship is more likely to sustain. So if you have a wood friend that you actually like to be friends with outside of work, don't wait until you're switching jobs before you start asking them to hang out outside of work. Start doing that while you are colleagues. Say, hey, would you like to, you know, get a drink after work or come with me on this hike this weekend, right? Because what that what that indicates is that, hey, this friendship isn't defined by location, that we are friends even when we don't have the circumstance that brings us together. And when we no longer have the circumstance that brings us together, we can continue to be friends. And Mercy, you've mentioned that we're in a friendship famine. Why do you think that is the case? Oh, this is a good question. I'm teaching a class on loneliness next semester. There's a lot of things. I mean, I think definitely my generation, hopefully the Gen Zers, it's a little different, but we were kind of taught then that romantic love is the only love that matters and one person is your soulmate and will complete you. And, you know, I'm not completely sure why we've been fed this narrative because it's not accurate based on the research. People have better romantic relationships when they have friends, right? And friendships promote better mental health, even if you're in a romantic relationship. So, you know, our entire history of our species has showed us we need an entire community to feel whole, but somehow I think we forgot that along the way because we know from the research that when people get into romantic relationships, they tend to lose friends and, you know, when they have kids even more, which, you know, is understandable. We have fewer time, less resources, but I think we're partially fed that narrative because it used to be that women had to be married. We didn't have any rights. We couldn't get a job. We couldn't, you know, open a credit card. And so now that women can do these things, we have this narrative to to keep women in their marriages. We have to sort of tell them that this is the end all be all of your entire existence because we don't have this, this sort of corrupting economic oppression to keep us in these marriages. And so I think you know, I think that just requires some unlearning because it's not healthy for us again or our friendships to see things in that way. I think the other thing is social media. I mean, social media's effect on loneliness is quite complex because the research finds that people in media to connect with people in person are actually more connected, whereas those who use social media to replace in-person connections are less connected. But overall, we see that, you know, things like having a phone on a table when you interact with someone leads you to feel less connected with them during the conversation. You know, we see that people are displacing time that they used to spend with friends to just scroll on social media and give people that pseudo sense of connection. So the pot doesn't boil over and they actually have to interact with someone. And so I think those are just some of the sort of like cauldron of resources why we're, we're getting really, really lonely and really, really disconnected these days. You make a point about technology, and I think it's such an interesting point in its entirely even bigger conversation because in many ways, especially during the pandemic, there's been isolation, anxiety, loss of connection. People have relied on technology, whether it's FaceTime or Zoom, in different ways to connect, to replace that in-person contact when it was restricted or limited. But I I wonder if if there's a concern that as we get on the other side of the pandemic or learn to live with it, if there's going to be that reliance on technology instead of getting together in person. You know, and then that's a really good point. Just to add a little bit of nuance to the conversation, there's this theory called electronic propinquity theory, which is a big 
fancy words, which basically means that when we don't have alternative forms of communication and we can affect on technology electronically, that interaction has more weight and has a greater impact on the relationship. But when we do have the option to meet face-to-face, our online communication will matter less for, you know, how well the relationship is going. So what that means is during the pandemic, because we didn't have other options, that technological connection had a greater impact on keeping our friendships alive, on keeping us satisfied. But now that us are coming out of the pandemic, we can interact face-to-face. We may see that actually our old patterns of interacting over technology aren't filling us in the same way, just simply because we have those alternative options. And so that I think is the nuance here that there's a context wherein electronic communication can really contribute to the friendship in a deep way, which we saw during pandemic, you know, other options, but as the context changes, the way we need to approach friendship needs to change because, you know, the end all be all is that when people interact face to face, compared to when they react, when they interact over, you know, audio, phone, video, they do feel most connected compared to all those other mediums. Marissa, how many friends does someone need? Do people get caught up too much in the quantity versus the quality debate? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's definitely more about quality than quantity. I think it's a subjective question for each person that you can answer based off of, do you feel lonely? And when do you feel lonely? If the answer is yes, you probably need more friends because loneliness is basically our subjective alarm system that tells us we need more connection. If the answer is no, hey, I have these two friends and then I feel really good, then you probably don't need more friends. But I would say that we get the biggest bang for our buck and that friendship improves our lives the most when we go from zero to one friend. That is the biggest change that's going to add the most to our life, right? So if you have zero friends, I would say you absolutely need to make at least one friend. (laughs) One is the minimum. (laughs) One is the minimum. And then we go up from there based on who you are and what your needs are. I was thinking about, in prepping for today's episode, sort of, you know, my circle of friends and and friendships can often be between people who are very different. And so can you give me an example of an unlikely friendship? Yeah, I mean, I think we see it. We're seeing a lot of like, intergenerational friends, which I think is really cool, like younger people interacting with older people. And I think it's really cool to look at those friendships through the lens of love. Actually, every generation has some wisdom. <laughs> and I think, you know, often we we might see the age difference as top down, right? One person imparting their life experiences onto another. But I think it can be really hard to form authentic connection on a hierarchy because when we're on a hierarchy, we tend to compartmentalized parts of ourselves. Like if I think someone's better than me or more knowledgeable than me, then I won't share my knowledge. I won't share my list. And if I think someone is below me in some way, I'm not going to be that interested and as interested in what they have to say. So there's this way that when we connect at a hierarchy, it will our ability to truly connect. And so I think when connecting across difference, whether that's age or any sort of difference, really, mm. it's about seeing that each person has a valuable thing to add based on their unique life experience. Like, you know, Gen Z has things to teach us as much as baby boomers have things to teach us. Sure. Absolutely. What's the best way to mend a broken friendship? The best way to mend a broken friendship, I think it starts with the process of reflection, like what went wrong. Should you mend the broken friendship? And that's, you know, what will be different this time for you, right? I think you should also ask yourself if this is mendable, able to tolerate that with where you are in your life. And if the answer is no, maybe wait for it. Um, and if there's nothing that's different, right, the circumstances are different, or you don't feel like you've grown and can go about this friendship 
differently, then also worth it to men. But if you do decide that it is worth it to men, I think it's worth it to start with humility, start with addressing your contribution to why the friendship fell apart. Like, I realized I did this, but, you know, I really wish I did it because I miss you so much and I hope that we can work on this going forward and hear your thoughts on this and what's been going for you or if you're interested in continuing on the friendship. Why is it so hard to make friends, new friends, as adults and as we get older in life? Well, here's the thing, Evan, you know, previous generations before us, even young kids, right? They have the infrastructure for making friends. And previous generations before us have had this too, because they grew up in communities with the same people that they saw all the time, just wouldn't move around as much, right? And that infrastructure, the ingredients that that are part of that infrastructure are continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability, right? If you want to create the sort of environment where people can make friends, have them interact repeatedly over time and have them share vulnerable things about themselves. And so we have that as kids, recess, you know, and we're just seeing each other over and over again. We're, we're chatting, we're sharing things about ourselves. Previous generations have that. They bumped into their neighbors all the time, their places of worship, you know, but, but now as adults who are residentially mobile, who, you know, live in these larger, more anonymous communities, who go to workplaces that don't encourage vulnerability, we have very few circumstances wherein friendship will happen organically in that way. And so now as adults, we need to be intentional and we need to take initiative because the research finds that people that be, see friendship happening based on luck are more lonely over time, whereas people that see it happening based on effort are less lonely. So you need to be active, agentic, intentional about telling people, hey, I'd love to connect further with you. And can we change traffic information? I'd love to follow up. And I would imagine as an adult, that that's a hard thing for people to do compared to when they might be in their 20s. Absolutely. And that's why I, I like to tell people one of my biggest tips that I talk about in the book is to assume people like because rejection is one of the fears of rejection. It's one of the biggest impediments to connecting and people that fear rejection actually tend to reject other people the most because when we fear rejection, we're closed off, we're withdrawn, right? Um, we're only thinking about ourselves. We're not thinking about how we come up to other people. So when you assume people like you, you trigger something called the acceptance prophecy, which is a, a phenomenon where Researchers have, when you tell people they'll be accepted, they become more friendly, warmer, more engaged, and they actually are more likely to become more accepted. So go into the environment, you know, where you meet new people, assume people are going to like you. And then my other tip is that you have to overcome not just overt avoidance, but covert avoidance. These terms mean, you know, overt avoidance means I don't show up to that event because I'm intimidated. Because I show up to that event, but I'm disengaged mentally. I'm on my phone. I'm talking to one person I already know. So you have to get out there. You have to overcome covert avoidance by actually engaging people. Hi, my name's Marissa. It's really nice to meet you. Welcome. And you have to assume people like you to help you do that. And ultimately, I think, Evan, when we want to make friends, we think so much about it. Why is nobody approaching me? Why has nobody come up to me? And we don't think about how we come up to other people, but we need to switch and think about, am I doing for other people what I want them to do for me? If I wish people approached me and said, hi, I need my name and maybe so welcome, am I doing that for other people? Because ultimately, the best way to belong is to show other people. Bruce, your book is filled with advice and tips just like this, and it's absolutely fantastic. Let me ask you, can a healthy friendship turn into a healthy, intimate relationship? Absolutely. You know, I think for... Setting friends 
what I realized is that we compartmentalize friendship and romantic relationship way too much. What makes one relationship healthy makes the other healthy. So if you have a friendship with someone, you have a lot of tools for what's going to make a successful romantic relationship. And in fact, research finds that feeling like partner is one of the biggest predictors of whether you'll stay together over time and even how much sex you'll have. So that's why I think we should have this, we can have more fluidity between like friendship and romantic relationships and skills that we develop in one relationship and apply them in another, right? People are used to working through conflict again with, with a spouse or partner, but you can use those same skills and the same tools and all the ways you've learned to do that in healthy ways with your friends too, because intimacy is intimacy is intimacy. Can you give us an example of a tradition that's shared between friends that fosters and really facilitates strong friendships? Yeah, I think one that's really important is sharing affection, telling friends how much you like them and how much they mean to you. Use like birthdays for this opportunity, but it's really important to tell people how much they matter to you. You know, the research finds that when people track early friendships over time, one of the best predictors of whether they continued with just how much affection they showed towards one another. And the reason behind this is because of, there's this theory called risk regulation theory, which basically argues that we all determine how much to invest in a relationship based off of our, our projection of how likely we are to get rejected. So if I think I'll be rejected, I invest less. If I think I won't be rejected, I invest more. And what affection does, it says to people, I love you, you matter to me. If you invest in this relationship, I will be happy and I will be excited by you wanting to connect with me. And so we make people, when we express affection, we make people feel safe enough to want to build a relationship with us. We talked about the pandemic. Do you have hope that people will look at friendship differently, value friendship more after the pandemic? I definitely do. I think people really had to realize, right? Because I know from the science of connection, that loneliness is as toxic for our bodies more toxic than a poor diet, more toxic than a sedentary lifestyle where we do exercise, as toxic as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, according to the research, right? Like loneliness is a public health crisis, more so than all the things that we identify as public health crises. But if, there, if there was any doubt about that before the pandemic, I think the pandemic has sort of exposed that crack because it's, as you mentioned, loneliness, it's something that so many people are experiencing and feeling over the past two plus years. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I think, because it's so amorphous, we don't always realize how cool it is, but the pandemic showed us, right? Like we really saw how, you know, how much it sinks us, how much it affects our mental health, how much it affects our, our feeling of, of being ourselves and being whole when we're disconnected from other people. And my hope is that that will inspire people to connect more and to pay a lot more attention and to invest a lot more in developing community. Marissa, I have to tell you, your, your book is absolutely fantastic. It's filled with incredible advice, tips, techniques, great nuggets of information, such an incredible topic, friendship. You are the friendship expert. Tell everyone where they can pick up a copy of the book and how they could find that everything that you're doing, all your articles in the book and, and learn all about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So the book is sold everywhere books are sold, whether you want to go to Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes and Nobles, you'll find it at all of those places. I'm also available to speak on belonging and connection on making friends if that's something that you're interested in. And I really appreciate Bonnie who's interested in friendship and developing community. Because I always say, if you make a friend, someone else makes a friend too. I absolutely love that. I can't wait for people to read the book. It's terrific. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, Evan.
Episode 46 is in the books. Dr. Marissa Franco, what an interview. Author of the new book, Platonic. This was a show. What an episode this was. Producer Dave, how about that spot with Dr. Franco? Just terrific, as usual, and more to come. It's just uh, exciting to look ahead to the rest of this year and the next season of this show. You got that right. And then you can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and the great Pod 617. And wherever else you get your podcast, follow the podcast and subscribe. Happy September. Happy fall. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.